Let's say you just bought a house. Bad news is, you're one step closer to becoming your parents. You'll proudly mow the lawn. Ask if anybody noticed you mowed the lawn. Tell people to stay off the lawn. Compare it to your neighbor's lawn. And complain about having to mow the lawn again. Good news is, it's easy to bundle home and auto through Progressive and save on your car insurance. Which, of course, will go right into the lawn. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company, affiliates, and other insurers. Discount not available in all states or situations. Welcome to Creating a Family. Talk about adoption and infertility. On today's show, we're going to be talking about transracial adoption, specifically parenting 12 to 18-year-olds, that the, the infamous tween and teen years. Uh, we packed a lot of information into this show, so here's a sample of what you're going to hear. We have to create an atmosphere where we're talking about this stuff. It can't be just our children's issue. It has to be our issue. We need to be talking about race, about racism, about profiling, and, of course, also about the positives of being, you chose the example of being an African-American male. And it's this is essential. And most of us, particularly those of us that are white, have not learned the vocabulary of race, have not learned how to talk about it, and sometimes even feel guilty or as if it's not okay. But if we do that when children are in these identity-developing years, which is effectively and essentially what the teen years are, mm-hmm. um, then we are very often our kids are going to feel that we don't see them. I'm Dawn Davenport. I am the director of Creating a Family. We are the National Adoption and Infertility Education and Support Organization. You can find us online at creatingafamily.org. We are a weekly radio show, and we use the podcast model, which is pretty much the way radio is moving now. It allows you to listen whenever and wherever you want. You can also subscribe to the podcast podcast to get notice of each new episode on your listening device, be it your phone, tablet, or computer. You can get that information on uh, iTunes. You can get that information on whatever uh, uh, app you are using to listen to this right now. Or you can go to our website, creatingafamily.org slash radio show, and we have information there on how to subscribe. This radio show is underwritten by our corporate sponsor, Faring Pharmaceutical. Fighting cancer doesn't have to mean a loss of your fertility. If you or a loved one are facing cancer, you may be eligible for no-cost medication through Faring's Heartbeat Program. To learn more, you can go to their website, heartbeatprogram.com. And if you are not a member of our weekly e-newsletter community, we would really love to have you join us. It is our primary way that we uh, establish a sense of community with, uh, with our audience. We let you know about the latest developments in either adoption or infertility. And we also give you uh, upcoming notice of what the blogs are going to be and what the uh, radio shows are going to be about so that you can submit your questions to be asked on air to our experts. And we would just really like to have you join. So please sign up for our weekly e-newsletter at any page, top right-hand side of creatingafamily.org. 
This show, as well as all the many resources provided by Creating a Family, couldn't happen without the generous support of our gold sponsors. And these are organizations that believe in our mission of providing unbiased education and support to those struggling to create a family. And some of these great gold sponsors are Independent Adoption Centers. Their mission is to provide open adoption placement and counseling to birth and adoptive families. They work with families in all 50 states and are fully licensed in eight states. To find out which ones, you can go to their website, help dot or adoptionhelp.org. Sorry about that. Spence Chapin is a full-service adoption agency bringing over 100 years of experience in a new direction, creating permanent loving families for the kids most in need. And that would include older kids, siblings, and children with special needs. They have eliminated the financial barrier by providing no-fee adoption services for families who consider opening up their lives to this, in their hearts to this very special population. We have the Nightlight Christian Adoptions. They have been providing adoption services for more than 50 years with offices in California, Colorado, South Carolina, and Kentucky. Nightlight provides international, domestic, foster, and embryo donation and adoption services through their Snowflakes Embryo Adoption Program. Hopscotch Adoptions, they are a Hague-accredited adoption agency placing waiting children from around the world. They also offer home studies and post-adoption services to residents of North Carolina and New York. And they're placing kiddos from uh, Armenia, Bulgaria, Georgia, Ghana, Guyana, uh, Morocco, Pakistan, Serbia, Ukraine, and they also do kinship adoptions. And we have the law offices of James Fletcher Thompson. They are a South Carolina firm committed to adoption law as well as assisted reproductive law. Children's Connection, Inc. is an adoption agency and actually a children's service agency as well with offices throughout Texas providing domestic infant adoption, embryo donation, home studies, and post-adoption support to families throughout the United States. On today's show, we're going to be talking about transracial adoption, in specific parenting 12 to 18-year-olds. The tween and teen years are an exciting time in young people's lives, and it can be both exciting and nerve-wracking for parents, and I speak as a parent of of currently quite a number of teens, it feels like, in my house. The transracial adoption adds another level of complexity to parenting, parenting, uh, including and maybe especially parenting tweens and teens. Our guests are Beth on today's show are Beth Hall. She is the founder and director of PACT and Adoption Alliance. Uh and she's also the co author of Inside Transracial Adoption and perhaps most important, a mom of two transracially adopted young adults. We also have Judy Miller. She is an adoption educator and support specialist. She is author of the email course Parenting Your Adopted Child, Tweens, Teens and Beyond. She's also the mother of four through birth and adoption. This is a re-airing of a show that we first recorded a couple of years ago, and uh, it is one that uh, when we were checking our statistics, we see that it is one that people come back to over and over again for the wealth of information that was given within the show. So without further ado, let me bring you this show, uh, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I have. Welcome, Judy and Beth, to Creating a Family. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Don. 
You know, I think we adoptive parents spend a lot of time before adoption thinking about uh, the early issues, attachment, becoming a conspicuous family, things such as that, but often don't think beyond the very young years. And, and so much of parenting occurs from the age of 10 on up. So um, roughly we're going to kind of start by talking about some of the, since we're talking about trans, parenting transracially adopted tweens and teens, um, we're going to start by talking about some of the racial issues that may come up at this uh, developmental stage, and then uh, later we'll kind of move into some of the more general adoption-related issues. We got a question from Veronica. She says, the whole Trayvon Martin tragedy was a wake-up call for us. Our son is African-American and 10. We have many role models in his life of strong black men, including our pastor, but we also must talk with him about how to walk in the world as a black teen and then as a black man. I could use some suggestions from both you and your guests. Beth, as somebody who has walked that walk uh, with your son uh, and has helped so many others do that, um, talk some to us about uh, Veronica's question about, particularly with black males in our society, that what is our role as as their parents to help prepare them? Well, I I would say two things come to my mind as the most important things to think about. First of all is what we do inside our house, and the other would be what we do outside of our homes. So inside of our homes, I think we have to create an atmosphere where we're talking about this stuff. It can't be just our children's issue. It has to be our issue. We need to be talking about race, about racism, about profiling, and, of course, also about the positives of being you chose the example of being an African American male, and it's it, this is essential. And most of us, particularly those of us that are white, have not learned the vocabulary of race, have not learned how to talk about it, and sometimes even feel guilty or as if it's not okay. But if we do that when children are in these identity developing years, which is effectively and essentially what the teen years are, mm-hmm. um, then we are very often our kids are going to feel that we don't see them because they're being seen as a racial being on the street every day. And that's the reality of Trayvon Martin, and and, and that's just one of a jillion examples. And, mm-hmm. exactly. and, and so it's, it's essential that we have those conversations around our dinner table all the time. And what that means is that our children can learn that we're allies. Outside the door, we need to act like allies. So this isn't necessarily happening to us, but we need to understand that it's our problem in society. So we need to be actively thinking about what, you know, some of the best parenting, it turns out, that we do, particularly as our kids get older, is what we do in the world. Are we really walking our talk? Kids are going to see that. And they are absolutely going to have a response if we're not, if we're saying, oh, no, it's great, we love people of color, but we don't love any people of color, that's a problem. (laughs) (laughs) So besides them, if they're the exception to the rule, won't work. Absolutely won't work. Mm-hmm. I, I agree with everything that – this is Judy. I agree with everything that Beth has said. Um, and I would also say that we need to start as early as possible with our children, um, even before they be, can really begin to understand the concepts of color and race and differences and similarities. And um, I also agree that talking around the dinner table is important, but also discussing what's going on in movies 
and in books and on TV because that impacts all of us and in the popular culture and what the kids see in the movie, um, in the videos, the music videos, and what's portrayed in music. Um, so I think we really have to be very, very plugged in and very, very aware mm-hmm. and also be educating ourselves from the get-go and just continue to do so. And, and educating ourselves not just on adoption issues, but also on racial issues, because as Beth pointed totally. out, I think it is so yes. true that we, as white Americans, often don't even see some of the racial issues because we've been protected from it, I suppose. I mean, it, it, so there's so much education that that we as white parents need to, and, and the, as you point out, the earlier the better, um, Judy, what are some ideas for parents uh, to get educated on on what it means to be a person of color in our society? Well, I, I would say to start, um, you know, get kids books, number one, and start talking and reading those books to them when they're little. There's, there are picture books. There are books that are for, for young children and, you know, keep going. Um, there are great websites out there. Uh, PACT is one of those. I would also say that parents need to get invested in finding out about not only um, race history in the U.S., but outside of the U.S., and then specifically really focus on uh, if their child is African-American or Hispanic or Asian, what has, what has been the history within and without of the country, and talk about that with your child. And watch those films, uh, perhaps screen those ahead of time, and then sit down and watch those with your children and have conversations. Yeah, you know, go ahead, oh, Beth. sorry, I was mm-hmm. just going to say this is Beth. I would add to that that I don't think there's anything more effective than what the, the asker of this question talked about: real people in your world, yeah, I agree. real people that you care about. Because if you have mm-hmm. not one example, quote unquote, person of color or African American person or whatever the child might be, but many then what happens is that is the greatest antidote to the media and, and, and sort of public perception that is often fear-based and highly mm-hmm. inaccurate about who, for instance, black folks are, who Latinos are, who, whomever is. Um, so the, the real re- relationships being forged not just for the sake of children but for the sake of those of us that are adults means that we're going to have real conversations and real experiences that we can then talk about. And I totally agree with you that we need to be talking about real things that are happening. So every, you know, as families of color, and and remember, even if we are white parents, we are now have taken on a new identity ourselves. Mm -hmm. We are in a family of color, and we need to own that. And as families of color... Every one of us is concerned about the Trayvon Martin situations of the world and how we all are going to navigate those. And and fantastic debates as children get older, and of course, even when children are young, they need to be hearing us talking about that as a personal issue. It is personal to us that one child has been, in this case, killed mm-hmm. because, what, he wore a hoodie and walked down the street? where mostly white people live, I mean, that's not okay. And every one of us needs to be speaking out about that in front of our kids. You know, I agree. Oh, mm-hmm. We've got an interesting question. It's long, so I'm not going to read it all. It's from Zena. And 
she is the parent of three Asian children, and, and what she wants to talk us to talk about is the different stereotypes that follow that in our society uh, towards Asians, and in particular, ah, yes, yeah, and in, well, uh, yeah, in, in, both the, the positives and the negatives. She's focusing more mm-hmm. on the the the, the and, and I put this in quotes uh, positive stereotypes, but I'd also like to expand it to some of the negatives as well. So let's talk about that because I do think uh, when we when we say one of my concerns is that often when when I talk about transracial adoption. Uh, parents of Asian children tune out because the assumption is that I'm talking about parents who adopt uh, black kids, and that is not the case. Uh, Hispanic children as well as biracial kids as well as Asian kids uh, all fall under that uh, the general heading of transracial uh, adoption. So um, let's talk some about the specifics for Asian adoption uh, adoptees and some of the racial issues they might face, and of course the the, the one that that she's mainly talking about, and we will be, we'll start with, and that is the model minority, the brainiac, the yeah. you know the the math elite, uh, you name it, the you know that's the stereotype. Uh, uh, Beth, we'll start with you, and then Judy, I, I want to hear you what you have to say on this one as well. Okay. Well, so this is what we know. We know that that any kind of stereotype, quote unquote, positive or negative, is a way of not seeing people for who they are authentically, but rather pigeonholing them, and and keeping them in some kind of box. And boxes are always confining and never okay for human beings, and particularly for adopted human beings, who already have more complex identity histories that they're trying to sort out. So, so you know, you if you talk to anyone who's been stereotyped, quote unquote, positive stereotypes don't feel easier to deal with. I remember going once to a Korean American um, conference, large conference, probably 250 people, and I was speaking, and and I was talking about race. And at the end of what I said, so a, a lot of adult adoptees were there to sort of check me out. I mean, I'm a white woman and I'm talking about race and they're thinking, okay, great, once again, love is enough, it's all going to be okay. And I had said something different and many of them stood up and in clapping and, and when I asked them why in front of the audience, because I wanted the parents to hear, they said, because nobody in our families talked to us about race and we felt we were being racialized every day on the street. So what I always say to parents is, absolutely, there's a racial hierarchy out there. Absolutely, we need to articulate that for our kids and help them understand that we see it too. So there's different stereotypes for African Americans, for Latinos, for Asians, and even within ethnic groups, there's different stereotypes. But that doesn't change that none of that is okay, and none of it's true. (laughs) It's all boxing, and it's all Mm -hmm. set up in a system that effectively puts people, quote-unquote, in their place. And and all of us need to stand up against that. So that's sort of my general take on that. And mm-hmm. And remember, you know, I can't tell you how many adult adoptees have talked to me about being, you know, racial stereotypes when they walk down the street with their dads and everyone assumes they're the young Asian girlfriend because they they have other stereotypes one very pertinent one is the way they are racially sexualized. Mm, Asian men often yeah. to be mm-hmm. non-gendered and Asian women to be overly or hypersexualized, both of which mm-hmm. are extremely problematic. So, so there's, exactly right. there's lots of stuff, you know. 
Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I, I I want to come back to that. That's a, that's a specific question. You know, I had in my own family, I had an interesting situation um, that happened. One of my children's uh, was I was overhearing her talk with her best friend, and the best friend had just done poorly on a biology or math test. I don't remember which one. Uh, and I assume from the conversation that that uh, my child had done fairly well, and. The, her best friend said, well, it's not fair, you're Asian, so of course you did well. And and my daughter said nothing. So I was sitting there, and I spoke up, and I said to her friend, I said, well, you know, that's, you know, that's, you know, that's a prejudice, and, and it's not true, and it's a stereotype. And then afterwards, and I and, and she she said, "Oh well," and you know she she downplayed it. And afterwards, I raised the issue with my daughter, who basically said, "Mom, I think you're overreacting. You know, it's it's no big deal. She didn't mean anything by it." And and it also and then she said, "Mom, it's true." And I said, "No, it's not true. Yes, you are good at math, but not all Asians are good at math." Um, and she said, "Well, you know, at least in this case, it's true." And, and so she just it was a non-issue for her. And and I think her take on it was. My reaction was over the top, uh, but, but you know that's that's her take on a lot of my reactions. But that's nonetheless, I I think it's an interesting uh, it's an interesting place to be as a parent. I still think we have to raise. I still think it's right to say something as a parent, uh, I, and then to let it drop. But yeah, this go is ahead, Judy. Mm-hmm. Um, I was going to say I, it is it is our job to raise the issue, um, and our kids do sometimes feel we overreact. My daughters especially have said that to me. Um, that said, and my girls are Asian, um, they do understand um, this positive and negative stereotyping, and they understand the racist um, aspects and the boxing that's going on. We've talked about the hypersexualization, and I have heard them respond in kind to people. So I'm really proud. They do get the message, but there are times they're like, Mom, you know, you're over the top, um, but they don't like um, having expectations placed on their shoulders, whether they're negative or positive, they want to be seen for who they are, uh, which are just you know young girls, teen girls. But it's my job as a mother to make sure that how I see them and their friends see them and their teachers who know them see them are not the way the rest of the world is going to see them. They're still going to have these expectations. So it's important for them to understand those to and to be able to navigate that when I'm not there and I'm not parked right next to them. Um but I what I do hear and what I, the responses I do hear are, are seem to be really healthy and good and strong. They're not afraid to speak up and put people in their place. Well and don't you think I think this is Beth that that mm-hmm. to build on that and the conversation you had with your daughter, Don, these are great opportunities for us to say you know, what about the kid who isn't good at math? Those were my exact words. <laughs> and what yeah. about the one, and, and my concern for you is not whether you in particular fit a particular stereotype or not. It's just it makes me mad that mm-hmm. you are even asked to shoulder the burden of the stereotype. Begin to give them that language. And what you'll find, what I've seen with my own kids and what I see with the lots of kids that PACT works with in our programs is they will begin to take on that language of social justice, if you will, if we teach them that language. If we don't teach them that language, then very often these kinds of comments go into their heart and they feel that they they should be defined, must be defined, or or 
or there's something wrong with them if they aren't defined by those stereotypes. And that we want to give them the ammunition to push back because they mm-hmm. won't always be positive and 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 they don't we don't want the world to define them just for the reasons you spoke about earlier. Music videos, all those what social culture is. None of us as parents is going to turn our kids over to that and say, "Go, good, let's just go with that." We we <laughs> yeah, want no. to teach our values. And so it's important mm-hmm. that we you know, our kids rolling our eye, their eyes at us when we sometimes get it wrong or we're over the top is is not a bad thing. And what you'll see is kids that do come out strong down the road, and they will use the very words that you put into their heads mm-hmm. to begin mm-hmm. to protect themselves down the road. So it is really important. Let's talk yeah. about the over-sexualization of Asian women. It's a it's a real issue, and it's a, it's a balancing act because as the mother of daughters, we do want our daughters to feel beautiful, uh, and, and we most of us believe our daughters are beautiful, and yet we also want to prepare them um, for the fact that some people will be viewing them, and, and, and again, it's a stereotype, and it's a box, and nobody wants mm-hmm. that. So how? let's talk some about how we arm our Asian girls to go forth, and, and Latina girls as well, but I think it, it more often happens. Uh, it's the, the over-sexualization, the over-feminization, the, the, uh, the, pa- the passivity, the, uh, the, uh, the whole thing that goes with the, I don't know, the geisha stereotype, I'm not sure what it is, but it's that stereotype. Um, Judy, why don't you start with mm-hmm. that, uh, handle that one. Well, what I've done is have my girls involved in athletics, and they do different sports, and they, you know, they have sorted through what they're good at, and they are good at something that they are um, seen by their peer boys and older boys that see them compete as being an athlete. They're seen as something else, um, and they they have developed confidence and a backbone, I would say. Um, internally, um, I, I, like, I guess I think of a willow. You know, they're they're subtle, but they're they're really they're supple, but they're very very strong. And um, and yeah, I'm a mom, so I do think my daughters are beautiful. But um, when I when they're around their peers, they're the boys uh, especially they don't mess with them, and the older boys that know them don't mess with them. Now we're we're here on vacation, and I'm watching older boys. Um, you know, there's a difference, and we do talk about it at dinner time about again how they are seen. Um, there's a stereotype about how women are seen, and they just they find it disgusting, but they're aware of it. And just we just keep trying to build that self confidence and that self esteem, and um, to believe in themselves. I guess it's best. I I mean, I totally agree. I I think that naming it is always the best antidote because if they can name it, then when we're not there, they can um, take male or otherwise attention to that towards them with a grain of salt and analyze: is this genuine attention that's interested in me as a human being? Mm-hmm. Or is this something else that perhaps I don't want to participate in? And and that's, of course, the goal is that you want them. You know, like everything with the teen years, the way I see it is I, I spent a lot of time counting backwards. If my children, I anticipated we're going to leave the home at 18, or maybe it's 20 in some cases, but whatever it is, somewhere in that range, then when they're 15, I figured I had three years 
to teach them to do everything they needed to do on their own. Mm -hmm. And I made parenting plans that counted backwards. If they need to be able to do this by the time they're 18 and they're now 15, then how are we going to get there? We're not going to get there if I protect them, overprotect them for three years and then launch them. <laughs> We're right. going to get there by meeting out little bits and pieces um, and having discussions about how it went so that, you know, by the end when my kids were in their senior years, they actually got to choose which parties they went to. Now, that doesn't mean I didn't have a lot of sleepless nights, but we had also done a whole lot. We got to have input, but they got to decide because I knew the next year – we weren't going to be part of the discussion. I wanted them to learn. And what I found is because we've done the work ahead of time, and I'm just mentioning parties, but it's a million things, right? Yeah. All these things we mm-hmm. worry about. What what we've done is is given them the tools that we had used ourselves for decision-making. And that's what we have to do as parents. <laughs> we have to do I, that. I agree with that. And then I'm going to go one step further and say we have a um, – what happens in our family as well is we have an older brother who has um my kids do have like they they say this often in at home we have we have each other's back mm-hmm. um but they talk and they talk a lot and he he gives he's in college now and he gives them a lot of counsel about older boys and older girls and what happens and um i think it's good coming from an older sibling um, he feels this responsibility, he feels this protection, and he does it in the way of uh, information. And it's coming to them via a whole different stream than mom and dad, who are fuddy-duddies, you know, are giving it to them. Um, and he's been just extraordinarily helpful. Um, it's just really good to have another sibling on board. Absolutely. And and if there's not a sibling, there's other options like the original asker of that the first question said, mm-hmm. having role models, having people that can be not only parent allies but also youth allies. So people yes. they can talk to who share some of their experiences and can begin to say, yeah, that happened to me too, and it mm-hmm. made me mad, or this is what I did, or whatever it might be. You know, and another uh, stereotype that hits um, primarily, it seems to Asians, and, and I think Beth, you mentioned it. It's, it's it goes, I think, hat in hand with the, you know, the the Asian stereotype is the over-sexualized woman and the under-sexualized male. Mm-hmm. But it's also oftentimes, and I have heard so many parents of Asian boys talk about this, and it's the height issue. Mm-hmm. In our society, masculinity is often defined by height. And although you can be short of any race, I do think that Asians as a whole tend to be shorter. Um, and that's a hard thing for a lot of, uh, of especially teen boys. Um, any suggestions on uh, sports is certainly a good one if your child happens to be athletic, but they well mm-hmm. may not be. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, so how do we arm our children who are uh, are not as tall? Um, or and it goes and it cuts other ways too. African American girls and their hair and you know and and body shapes and things like that where it is a it's a, a racial uh, uh, that particular racial type does not fit the, what our society considers the ideal. Beth, any suggestions on that or any thoughts on that? Well, for sure, if 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 they're in a friend group and a and a peer group that reflects them as opposed to reflects us as their parents, in other words, mostly white people, 
that's a lot harder than if they're in a friend group where there's a lot of people and a lot of examples because if there's a friend group of other Asians or other African Americans or other Latinos, then there's also a parent group <laughs> of them because they're being parented by mm-hmm. their parents. And 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 so again, the more there are, it, there's no greater stereotype buster than reality. <laughs> and the reality mm-hmm. is that that in in friend groups of African American girls or Asian boys, they're talking about these issues and they're arming themselves, and and that's a critical component of what kids need. So racial isolation is really, really heightens these issues for adopted kids at these ages. In other words, the teen, tween and teen years. Mm-hmm. So if you know, and very often what happens is it's very easy as a parent, isn't it? to think I have every intention of doing this. One of my children, my daughter is Latina, and I had every intention of not only would she learn Spanish, but I would learn it with her. Well, thank God she's feisty enough to have learned it herself, but I didn't do it. I meant to. But in the millisecond between the time she was born and the time she turned 10, I hadn't gotten to it. And very often what happens is as parents, we kind of wake up to these issues around 10, like the first questioner, you know, I'm now thinking my child's going to start to be seen as a young man and then a man, and how am I dealing with this? And and we're we're already behind the eight ball. So I couldn't agree with more. We need to start as early as possible, which is always tomorrow. There's no mm-hmm. use in looking back and feeling bad about what we haven't done, but simply getting up tomorrow and and doing what we know we need to do tomorrow, and 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 then and make those connections because I, there's. There's no question in my mind and in the research that I've seen that racial isolation is, can be quite debilitating for transracially adopted youth. Mm-hmm. And and avoiding that is uh, there really can't be much more important work we can do. And one suggestion for in particular, uh, well, Andy, I was thinking internationally adopted kids because we the, the, the agencies, mm-hmm. many agencies put on camps for um, and programs uh, for children adopted from China, children adopted from, from India, children adopted from Guatemala. And I am sure that there are agencies that do the same for children adopted domestically, but transracially there as well, African-American or, or, or whatever. Um, I think that is that is certainly one way. Um, it's not in your everyday life, uh, and everyday life would be helpful. But for those people who are saying, you know, there just simply aren't that many Asians or there aren't that many Latinos who Latinos who live near where we live, this is a way that you can actively um, involve your children. But my suggestion would be to start young because when you're, if you try to introduce concepts like this, ideas like this, events like this, when your children are in middle school and beyond, often you'll get pushback. Uh, Absolutely. Well, you, yeah, I mean, you kids aren't back. looking to you to find their friends when they're twelve. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, or to or to plan their, you know, their summers. Mom, I'd rather go to tennis yeah. camp. I don't <laughs> want to go to, mm-hmm. uh, you know, China camp this summer. You know, and if you, but if they have been going for many years and they have friends there, it becomes part of the family summer activities. So it is. Uh, you may still get pushback, but usually mm-hmm. if they've had a good time in the past and their friends are continuing to come. Then they would be they will they will continue to be open to the idea at least longer than they would if you introduced it to begin with at at you know at middle school uh, mm-hmm. so uh, never a good time to throw new things in at that age <laughs> or so I have no. found out. <laughs> 
You are listening to Creating a Family, talk about adoption and infertility. We thank our sponsors for providing the resources to bring you this show, including Cryos International. They are a New York-based sperm bank, which is part of the world's largest international network of sperm banks. You can get more information on them by clicking on their logo on any page of the right-hand side of any page of our site. Today we're talking about parenting transracially adopted teens and tweens. Our guests are Judy Miller, an adoption educator and author of the email course, Parenting Your Adopted Child, Tweens, Teens, and Beyond, and Beth Hall. She is the founder and director of PACT and Adoption Alliance, also the co-author of Inside Transracial Adoption. Now I kind of want to just generally move towards talking more about some adoption-related issues that uh, sometimes, not always, but sometimes become uh, more relevant in our in our children's adolescence. Here is a question from Beatrice. She says, our daughter is 14 and was adopted from China. The whole abandonment thing is a huge issue for her right now. We have no concrete information since she was abandoned. Uh, we don't want to make things up, but we would like to help her feel loved. Uh, we are really struggling as a family with this and would appreciate any suggestions. Um, Judy, um, yeah. the, the, it's, it's not just children from China. Quite frankly, it's often children mm-hmm. from many it, 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 and adopted domestically as well, although certainly it, we often have less inter, uh, information uh, with international adoptions, and that can be very hard for our adolescents. Um, mm-hmm. Any thoughts? Well, my my first thoughts are... Um, that you should begin talking to your child about their story, what you do know about their story uh, when they're very, very young. Again, it's it's like adoption or like um, race or like sex. And um, you do need to bring up those terms, abandonment. You do need to talk about the, um, as in China, you know, the one-child policy. It's not a very nice story. It's not you know, puppies and blooms, but it is the truth. And you may not have all the facts, but if you can tell them, if you can tell your children the policies of those countries, what why typically a child is um, available to be adopted, um, even if you don't have that facts and help them work through that, um, they can come, to, hopefully come to some type of resolution and understanding why they were able to be adopted, Um but it doesn't necessarily always make them feel better. Um, my kids are all in different places as far as their stories. Um, I've got one who could care less. I've got one who's grieved, tremendous grief. I've got another one that, you know, that's all we want to talk about all the time. So a child's temperament will determine as well um, how they how they deal with it. But I think if you are talking about the issues and the story, um, from you know as early on as you can because they start to really understand grasp what it means to have been adopted when they're five or six years old and then it becomes more complex for them and all those you know the, the loss and the grief and everything extending out from that I think you're doing your child um, a great service and you're doing yourself a great service as far as opening up that conversation and having a fluid conversation ongoing um, Adolescence is a time you know, girls get their periods, their their bodies are changing, the hormones are changing in their brain even before that, and they're feeling a lot of different things. And um, they're they're having issues with their identity. That's what we we all have identity issues uh, when we're going through adolescence. Um, there are a lot of questions, and we all want to know where we come from. So what she's feeling is 
you know, very normal for someone who has been adopted, but it's also compounded by the fact that she's probably has been adopted and she looks different than her parents um, and may feel that they can't understand because they may or may not have been adopted and they are not Asian. Mm-hmm. Beth, any thoughts, any additional thoughts? Yeah, well, I agree with what Judy just said. I, I think two things. I, I just got back from a week at our family camp that we do every year, and, and this year we had, I think, about 60 tweens and teens, and I got to spend some time with them. And when I ask them what they need from their parents, overwhelmingly what they say is, tell us the truth. I mean, overwhelmingly. No matter how harsh it is, no matter how hard, what the system of adoption has already kept so much from them So if what you know is nothing, that's what your kids need to hear from you. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes as parents it's super tempting to want to fix, to want to make things better. But what our kids need more than anything from us is to just be with them in their pain, to say maybe that, excuse me, me, but sucked in, you know, the vernacular of that age (laughs) range, right? Maybe Mm -hmm. what happened to them sucks, but I... I'm with you in this no matter what. I see how hard it is for you. And mm-hmm. I can sit with this and with you no matter how hard it is. You are not alone in this. I'm so sorry this happened to you. Instead of rushing to say, but we love you and other people love you, you know, probably if they're brave enough to share with that parent, Bridget, uh, what was her name, I'm sorry, who uh, asked the question, mm-hmm. they, they probably already know that she loves them. That's not the issue. They're thinking about whether they were loved by their first family or perhaps whether they were loved by their people or their country or whatever it might be that's going on in their head. What they need is to know that we're with them in that, that we feel Mm -hmm. for them and we feel we can sit with their feelings even when they're hard. Because very often I think adopted people do not feel that their parents necessarily are comfortable with the sadder, loss-related parts of their story. And the reality is that's part of their story. It's part of our story, too, actually. It's part of our, yeah, I was going to say that, too. And some parents do a lot, oftentimes come to adoption via loss. And we do need to give our kids permission. We do need yeah. to tell them that we want them to share how they feel. And when they're young, we need to give them the words for the emotions that they feel. And they need to know that they can talk about these things with us and that we want to share with them and there is nothing they're going to say um, that is going to keep us from supporting them and being with them. Because they're fearful, I think, oftentimes of losing our support and losing our love and being rejected by us. And rejection is a core issue in adoption, which stems from loss. And, um, you know, I've seen this in one of my kids, very, very frightened to share this information with me at first. And um, through the years, it's become easier and easier to the point that it's it's a fluid conversation. It doesn't go on all the time, but it does ebb and flow. And it's comfortable. And it's comfortable with everybody in the family. And it's a good thing. It's a really good thing. It is. I, I think in particular with uh, the children from China, there is the feeling that because we have no information usually, um, it, because it, almost all of them were abandoned because you, because of the, the governmental policies don't allow for a placement. Uh, it has to be through abandonment. But I do think we can share with them what we do know in general 
while still being honest that we don't know whether the, this, that what we're telling them would apply to them. We don't know your specifics, but we do know in general that many girls were relinquished mm-hmm. uh, because of the one-child policy. We do know in general that most children were second- and third-born girls, not first-born girls. You know, we do know that. Now, whether that means yours, we also know that, in general, children were left where somebody might find them. Again, not always, but we do know. So there is general information we can share with them while maintaining the honesty that we simply don't know and may okay. never know. No, that's, I think that context is hugely important. Yes. And, and that's really what you're talking about, and, mm-hmm. I, and that is being honest, <laughs> To talk yeah, I think about it is, context. Well, and and nowadays we can also talk about the realities that wow, did you know there's some people out there now that are doing these DNA banks and it may be that down the road it will be possible to learn more. And if that was something you were interested in, we could consider that down the road or whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff changing because of course 10 years ago we thought there would never be any information out of China about Mm -hmm. any kind of family information. And now I've worked with several families who, in fact, have reunited with birth family members through some of these DNA banks. So so there's a whole new world. And in 10 more years? Anything's possible. So, so it's 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 uh, absolutely just being honest with kids about what we know, what we don't know, and what the context was and is. This is mm-hmm. a question from Leslie Ann. She said, our daughter's first mom was a drug addict and a prostitute. Our daughter is 13 and is beginning to act out. The other day when she was being punished, she yelled, I'm just acting like my real mom. You should have known what you were getting. Whoa, did that blow me away. We are now looking for a good counselor. I have two questions. What can we do now to help our daughter? And two, how do we find a good counselor to help her? Um, all right, let's take the first one, and then we'll come back to how to find a good uh, adoption counselor. Um, Beth, the, uh, this you, know, you were talking with your um, uh, teens at your at the camp, right. and, and they're asking for parents to tell the truth. Well, in fact, apparently uh, Leslie Ann and her husband have shared mm-hmm. um, information with their daughter about her first mom, um, and it's hurtful. And uh, and the daughter is now. Uh, I don't know if she's feeling less, but but she certainly you know, is at least processing it because she's certainly talking about it. So, <laughs> any, any thoughts? Well, in the immediate of those kind of moments, uh, you know, obviously this is a bright girl, so she's done what I what I call distraction. Mm-hmm. What she's done is she's brought up what she knows might be a triggering issue in the family and sort of put a stop to remember where this started, she was acting out. So what I might say to a child who said something like that, and certainly my own children have both used this methodology to try to get out of being held responsible for whatever they mm-hmm. might or might not have done, I would say to them, wow, it sounds like you've really been thinking about your birth mother a lot, and I think her about her a lot too. I look forward to talking about that. But right now we're talking about whether you made your bed or blah, 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 whatever it might be, and that's what we're going to deal with right now. So as parents, we have to be really clear about what's on the table, right? So, And then that family needs to have those conversations about choice, choices, whether we are defined 
by who we come from genetically, which of course applies to all human beings, not just adopted ones, whether we're fearful about being like them, and, and all of those kinds of conversations. So, so that's a real opportunity to talk about um, both, because I don't doubt that many of the positive characteristics in that young woman also come from a genetic place that relates back to her birth mother. So she is not just a prostitute and a drug user, I think she said. Mm-hmm. She was also some other things. And at a minimum, she found a way to stay alive and healthy enough for this child to be born. And and so so it is important, I think, for the family to talk about the whole truth, to understand the context of what it means. No 13-year-old is a prostitute and a drug user without a very tough beginning. It just doesn't happen. So so helping this young girl understand what her first mother might have gone through would will probably help. And um, and just having those conversations. And very often they're scary conversations for us as parents. But but they are real. And, and what this young woman, girl, is making clear is our kids are thinking about this. So the choice we have as parents is not whether or not they think about it. The only choice we have is whether or not we engage in that conversation with them or let them do it on their own. As a parent, I choose engage every time. Because mm-hmm. there's no way I'm going to say to my kids, yeah, go work that out for yourself. I'm not going to trust the world in that way. Or no, but I yeah. very much like the fact that you're also not going to engage at that moment because it likely right. is, is, it is a distraction. At that mm-hmm. moment, it's the you snuck out. Right. Exactly. You are not having, you're going to still hand <laughs> and over your phone. We're going to talk phone. about that. <laughs> yeah. And we're going to talk about how long I'm going to own That's your right. cell phone. That's and right. then we, now, but we're going like, to come back to the birth yes. parent issue. Yes. And we can't be too afraid to do that. And sometimes we yes. are as parents, let's be honest. We mm-hmm. get scared, and so we avoid too. We can't allow that because if we do we're effectively saying to our children we don't want to know about this which just leaves them with only I guess I'm going to be like them that's the only choice Mm -hmm. I have yeah okay yes and okay Judy go ahead oh I I agree I mean what I hear in her her voice is um, confusion Mm -hmm. um, fear and um, identity you know, it's all it's all mixed up in there, and I think you do have to divide and and uh, conquer them separately. We've got two things. It seems going like on this there. would be a great opportunity to open up the discussion, almost on a theoretical level, of what do we know about what of each of us comes from our genetics and what of each of us comes from our environment. And it's a fascinating. Mm-hmm. It's a fascinating. We've done a lot of shows on that, partly because I'm absolutely fascinated by this, and it's certainly not a nature or nurture issue. It's a nature and nurture issue, and that's impo- That's powerful for our children to understand that there are many good things, and yeah. That this and the other thing is that I think that one of the things she wants her daughter, I would hope to understand, is that she may have a predisposition towards uh, addiction. Therefore, she will be, mm-hmm. needs to be quite careful um, with uh, drugs. But that, you know, the the fact you're not genetically going to be, be a drug addict or genetically going to be a prostitute, there's a difference between choices, even though you may have a, a, a certain predisposition that would make it easier. So I think that could also, be a... 
a I, great I, way to talk about those issues. Go ahead. I totally agree, Don. This is Beth. I'm sorry to interrupt. I, I, I also think it's a great opportunity to make sure that children understand the difference between a person's identity and a person's choices. So that, you know, this might be a family that chooses besides seeing someone, which is a good idea, is but they might also consider mm, volunteer work at a homeless shelter where mm-hmm. there's lots of people who are drug impacted, people who are homeless, people who have made choices in order to survive around prostitution. And in that in doing that, this child with not with a not with just their birth parent, but with just other people will start to see, well, wow, these are complicated human beings. And I feel both sorry for them and also sometimes don't like what they're doing. And they have both um wonderful components to who they are as well as kind of horrifying components to who they are. That in other words, introducing that complexity will allow mm-hmm. this child to see that there probably was more to her first parent than just those two identities that she knows yeah. about, which very often we focus on those negatives, don't we? Because we're scared yeah. of them. And 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 that and children do that too. And then they think that's all that defines this person that they know inherently they're connected to. So that's complicated for them, of course. Well, it gives them a level of, uh, this is Judy, it gives them a level of empathy and understanding. Mm-hmm. And exactly. uh, um, and they need that, just like we need that. And um, we have to keep pulling those layers away. And I think that's one of the big jobs um, adoptive parents have to do. And if we are parenting transracially, we are required to even pull more layers off and really dig through those and address those and help our children. Uh, you know, I love that don't. idea of volunteering at a homeless shelter. And I'm sitting, as as you were saying it, mm-hmm. I was thinking, you know, we we say that we need to give our children role models. We need to give our children exposure to people of their race, and, and that is very true. But sometimes that's, in a way, something you're also saying is if our child's, if we do know that our child's uh, birth parents had a specific issue such as that, uh, in this case, drug addiction or, or prostitution, exposing them to others who are struggling would help them see that it's not that each individual is more than just a label, drug addict or label, prostitute. That's they right. can also be funny. They can also be kind. They can also be uh, intelligent uh, and make really lousy choices. That's uh, right. Yeah, so well, in a way, yeah, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Oh, I was going to say, and I would also think it would be a great idea for the parents, at least one of the parents, to be doing this with their child. Oh, yeah, I would think, um, yeah. Not oh, just course. send them out there, you know, no. by themselves to do that or do community service with a couple of their friends. I think it would be great for them to do it with them. Well, and you'll yeah. learn, uh, people impacted by addiction, it's, it's, it is a lot about choice, and you start to find mm-hmm. out that they're not just evil beings. They, in fact, no. are complex beings who who get sucked into choices that that certainly don't allow them to be parents to babies because babies require full-time care. But again, it takes that fault off of, because often adoptees in this, you know, in her kind of circumstance, in, in many circumstances, good or bad, presume as children that the adoption had something to do with them personally. Mm-hmm. In other words, it was their fault or something they did. I mean, if I sit with eight, nine, ten-year-olds and say, so I know you're all adopted. Tell me, why do you think you were adopted? 
I usually hear things like, I cried a lot as a baby, or, you know, I have a big nose, really things that break your heart. And and what they need help to understand is that actually adoption choices are adult choices to adult problems, and that children simply are innocent bystanders, if you will, to the choices that are made. Now, it's a pretty big action on your life that you're an innocent bystander to, but the truth is children don't cause this. <laughs> they just mm-hmm. don't. It's the choices of adults. And and that's an important lesson also so that kids aren't internalizing this sense that somehow if they'd been better, if they'd been this, if they'd been that, this might not have happened to either their parent or them. Mm-hmm. And that and the the thing is that oftentimes with teens is they don't say it directly that way. They act in a way, and you have to figure mm-hmm. out that this may be underlying it. Um, it would be great if our if our children and our adolescents would sit down and say, you know, Mom, I have been thinking a lot about this, and I'm kind of wondering, and that's right. great. But, you know, that doesn't happen a lot in my life. No. no. <laughs> Behavior is definitely the language of children and adolescents. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. And and they say, you know, Mom, you keep raising these issues. You keep talking about it. I went, well, yeah, somebody's got to. <laughs> I seem to be the only one who will. <laughs> Judy, what are some of the other uh, adoption-specific uh, issues that will often uh, become to come to the fore in adolescence because of the developmental stage that our young people are at at, at that point? I, but um, in my experience, um, it's rejection shows up time and time and time again. Um, it, it ups and flows. Um, constantly and you just need to have that conversation all the time um as far as racially um what i have heard is you know i I wish i looked more like you you know you're you're, you are your children's parents your kids often want to look like you and they can't that's that's physically impossible um and we talk about those differences and we talk about their beauty and um you know we get in the mirror and we 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 go through it and we talk about complexion and bone structure and and hair and eyes and skin and and stature and um you know it's not something we can change and um you just make sure that we're our kids are with a um very mixed diverse group of friends adopted and non adopted um of their race and of other races and ethnicities and um yeah, and just keep it talking about It goes to the social isolation issue, uh, yes. the uh, racial isolation issue. Beth, in okay, rejection certainly is a um, an issue that can raise its head. How can rejection, how does rejection sometimes look? Um, assuming you're not going to have the conversation where your child says, I, I'm feeling kind of rejected right now. Right. Assuming well, you're not having that, what might right. it look like? Often it looks like either rejecting behavior on the part of mm-hmm. the youth or, uh, so, you know, I don't care about them, screw you, screw them, whatever it might be, that kind of thing, or uh, the opposite um, sort of, uh, you know, fear, social anxiety, um, you know, really um, uh, poor self-esteem that leads to few friendships or fear of of peer relationships or a hard time with peer relationships. You know, I think as parents, 
there may be nothing more important than making sure that we hang in with our teens. I think that every single one of our kids, no matter how they came to us, no matter what path of adoption there was, um, no, no matter how planned, no matter how open their adoption, closed their adoption, whatever it might be, every one of them has lost at least one family and maybe several along the way. And when something's happened to you once, there's inherently a knowledge that it could happen again. Mm-hmm. The teen years are often volatile. It's their job to try things. And when it's our job to try on new identities, to check out things, to take risks, that's part of their job too at that age. Every one of us did it to form a full human being that we are now. It's, it, that means that some of the choices they're going to make are going to scare us as parents. But no matter all of that, and some of them, by the way, we're going to disagree with, which is scary and difficult, we have to stay connected. Nothing matters mm-hmm. more. Nothing. Because if we're not part of the conversation, they're doing it on their own, and they're learning from society. And that's just not acceptable. So, And I mean, we have to stay connected no matter what. I'm not a big believer in this tough love stuff. Because tough love has a tendency to say, if you cross X line in the sand, whatever the line is, no matter how reasonable the line, if you cross that line, you're out of this family, you're out of this relationship, or we're closing down this, that, or the other thing. And I think that that's very, very dangerous with adopted children. Mm -hmm. Because they've already had that happen, and they cannot afford to lose us. If we interview adopted kids and say, what do your parents think about X, Y, and Z? They all know. They know our values. We've already told them our values all along their childhood. We, we don't, it doesn't mean we agree with them just because we stay connected even when they do things we don't like. I, I just think that's the most important thing. And I think it's sometimes hard as parents because our kids, I agree. they yeah. act out <laughs> in big ways. I agree with you, Beth. Yeah. yeah. You, ha- you have to be there. I agree. You, it's it is absolutely critical to mm-hmm. um, be more. I'm using hands-on in quotations mm-hmm. um, of a parent when your kids hit adolescence um, than you've ever been. They I need you more. Yep. They need you more than they've ever needed you. Mm-hmm. And you get through those stages. You come out the, on the other side. Hopefully, um, you know, pretty connected, and they know you're there. They need you. They really, really need you. I see that with my own children. I grew up in an adopted mm-hmm. family, too. My sister's adopted. Mm-hmm. And what I've seen is when we hang with adopted people, when we say nothing, nothing can break this bond, mm-hmm. they do not take that for granted, <laughs> believe me, no. more so than those of us that are born to our families often. Yeah. Because, again, it's happened to them once before. So you you will get through this, but you have to hang in. And that can be very hard very triggering when mm-hmm. teens are doing their teen behavior. <laughs> and, and they all do it. It's there's no there's no exemption from this this, no. this identity <laughs> journey, if you will. And and that's scary for us as parents, but it's critical that we stay connected. Mm-hmm. Well I can't think of a better note to end on. That was beautifully said, so I'm going to not say anything else. <laughs> We've said it. I'm going to end right there. Thank you so much. Beth Hall and Judy Miller for being our guest today on Creating a Family. Now, I know everyone out there is going to want more information on both of you. You can get that information uh, at with for Judy. You can get both her guide and her e- email course as well as other information at her website, Judy M. Miller. 
www.thepowerofpositivityclub.com. You can get a whole host of information, educational information and resources at the PACT web- website, which uh, is the, or, uh, the agency and the organization that uh, Beth is the director of. And the email, not the email, I'm sorry, the URL for that, the website uh, address for that is PACTADOPT, P-A-C-T, ADOPT, A-D-O-P-T, dot org. Uh, and uh, the and so either of those websites are great resources uh, for uh, additional information to stay in touch with the latest developments in adoption or infertility, as well as receive the upcoming week's blog and show topic. You can sign up for our weekly newsletter on the left-hand side of any page at creatingafamily.org. The UN estimates that there are 143 million orphans in the world, including 107,000 currently available for adoption in the U.S. foster care system. These kids, as well as the millions of older children throughout the world, deserve a home. To get more information about U.S. kids waiting for a family, you can go to the adoption resource page of creatingafamily.org, where we include links to various photo listings of some of these kids. Thanks for joining us today, and I will see you next week. Thanks for having us. Hi, it's Jamie, progressive number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie, it's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony, but you will bounce back. I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, it's pitchy. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. The Starlight Lounge presents An Evening with the Progressive Box. The moon, yeah. That's Hugo, tickling the ivories. He just saved by bundling home and auto with Progressive. Gonna finally buy a ring for that gal of yours, Hugo? Send her my condolences. Hi-oh! This next one's for you, too. There's a burglar in my heart. Thank you. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations.